but it's an honor to be back together. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 7. The verses will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. But um, we are continuing in our series called Soul Anchor as we're studying through this book, uh, this, this amazing book. And we've been in this interesting section. We took a break last week to look at kind of the prayerfulness of Jesus. And now we're jumping back in. And the, the, the previous few weeks, we had been looking and studying this warning that our author, as he had, he had been working and building towards the priesthood of Melchizedek and this, this promise, this oath that Jesus was this priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then a few weeks ago, we hit this timeout, this pause where our author recognized, man, there's something going on and I have to call it out. I have to address that you guys are not growing in your faith. You are not pressing on into maturity and I'm concerned for you. And so he had to address this issue. And this morning we get to dive into the priesthood of Melchizedek that our author has been building towards. And, and as we get started, I think it's, it's maybe just helpful, and this can be a little bit of an interactive time. Uh, you know, we can, we can talk to each other. It's cool. We're family. Um, when you think of a priest, what images come to your mind? Somebody, somebody give me something. Catholic church. So like nicely dressed collar, right? Anything else? I don't know why, but I picture like a real clean shaven, like kind of the little choir boy haircut. A picture of life of kind of solitude and celibacy and just to add another sadness. Um, but anything else come to your mind when you think about a priest? No, that's, yeah, that's, is that most of us what we picture in our minds? Um, so our author and our audience in the Old Testament would not have pictured that. And it's important for us, as we're going to talk a lot about the priesthood this morning, for us to understand that when we talk about, and when our author writes about this priesthood, they would have understand that this was a gruesome job. This was a dirty job. This was a a job where they had to roll up their sleeves. They were responsible for offering sacrifices, for being the mediators between God and man, that they would bring their sacrifices to these priests so that their sin could be atoned for. They would not have pictured a well put together necessarily, but somebody that was willing to stand in the gap for them. And and this morning, another question I have for us, before we get into all of chapter seven, so I hope you guys brought snacks because we're going to be here a while. Um, When you think of the priests, who comes to your mind as maybe the first priest? Levi, maybe? The, The Levitical tribe was the tribe through whom the priests came. Maybe, maybe Aaron, Moses's, um, Moses's brother. Possibly, if you know your Bibles really well, Aaron, or not Aaron, Melchizedek, I'm sorry. Melchizedek, who we're going to look at, who just kind of appears out of nowhere in Genesis 14. Maybe he comes to your mind. As we're thinking about the priesthood this morning, I think it's so important that we see that and go all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, we get God speaking creation into existence. We get God saying, let there be light. We get God bringing about Adam and Eve and breathing life into them. We get God commanding them and commissioning them into service and work. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And then he gives them the garden to to oversee, to cultivate and grow. And then in Genesis 3, we get this heartbreaking account where our first parents rebel. 
where they choose, they say, we, we don't want to need God. We want to be like God. We want to be on the same playing field as God. And so we're going to reject his will. We're going to choose our own way. And humanity is fractured. Our parents, our first parents sin. And they realize in that moment, because sin always isolates, sin always exposes and leads to shame. They realize we are exposed. We feel shame. We feel guilt. We are naked and exposed. And our first parents do what you and I, and I believe what our audience in Hebrews is guilty of. They decide to take it upon themselves to cover their sin. They go and grab leaves and they decide, I'm going to cover over my shame. I feel exposed and I'm going to deal with my problem. And then in the, in God comes and he walks through the garden. He, he calls out our first parents. We see that there's a curse that falls on Satan. There's a curse that falls on Adam. There's a curse that falls on Eve. We get the promise and hope of the gospel in Genesis 3. And then at the end of Genesis 3 in verse 21, listen to this. It says, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. And it goes on to have this beautiful picture of grace as God casts out our first parents out of the garden so that there could be a restoration of relationship. But what I want us to see here is that if we go all the way back to Genesis 3, God is the first high priest. That God's plan has always been when it comes to our sin, he would mediate the gap. He would take care of the problem. That you and I, we, we would follow in the footsteps and we're gonna see that our audience is following in the footsteps of Adam and Eve, that they take it upon themselves and insufficiently strive to cover their sin. That our work cannot get us to God, that we need an outside solution. We need a better priest. And it's not Aaron and it's not Levi and it's not the, the priesthood that comes from the Levitical line, but rather it's a different and far better line, which is exactly where we're going to pick up in, uh, in Hebrews chapter seven. And so let's just dig in. We've got a lot of ground to cover. In verse one, in chapter seven, he says, for this Melchizedek, who is king of Salem, priest of the most high God, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a 10th part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. In this first part of uh, Hebrews chapter seven, what we're going to see is our author going back and looking at Melchizedek and bringing, as he has done all throughout the book of Hebrews, bringing an Old Testament figure into the New Testament. He's going to look at two different priesthoods in the Old Testament. And he starts here as he has been kind of teasing out throughout chapter five and throughout chapter six. And um, he's been teasing out this idea of the priesthood of Melchizedek. 
And so he brings the audience back to Genesis 14, where we get this interesting experience where Abraham, there's been this season of war where kings have been battling with each other. And Abraham finds out that his family, that Lot and his, his family have been captured and taken into captivity. And Abraham res, res, Abraham's response to that is, nah, not my family. I'm going to gather 300 of my guys and I'm going to go get them back. And he goes and he slaughters all these kings. He slaughters all these people. He brings his family back. He pillages, he plunders. He's like an awesome pirate. And he brings his family back. And on his way back, he runs into this king and priest named Melchizedek, who seemingly comes out of nowhere. He just kind of pops into the story. He prays, he blesses Abraham. And then out of an overflow of reverence and generosity, Abraham gives him a tenth of his spoils from war. He doesn't need a rule. He doesn't need a law. He just is overwhelmed by this great king and this great priest that he says, let me give generously to you, high priest, king of righteousness, king of peace, Melchizedek. This is before Aaron. This is before Levi. This is before the law has been given. This supersedes and precedes that. And our author goes back and he starts, he encourages his audience. Let's look at Melchizedek for a moment. Look at that, that he is, um, he blesses the father of faith, Abraham. And then in verse three, we get a little bit of a tricky passage here. He says, he's without father or mother. He's without genealogy, neither beginning of days nor end of life, but he resembles the son of God. I think this is important for us to just talk about for a moment as, as what we're seeing here. And when we come to the Bible, what we see is the Bible is actually quite silent about this awesome high priest that he shows up here in Genesis 14. He blesses Abraham. He receives uh, the tithe from Abraham. We get him again in Psalm 110 as an oath and a promise that one would come in that line. And then we get Melchizedek here in Hebrews. The Bible is pretty silent about where he came from, where he went, what happened to him. Um, we don't know a whole lot. And so what had developed was this, this kind of awe and mystery And this fascination with Melchizedek, in light of the promise, in light of the oath, in Psalm 110, the people of God had wondered and had been waiting for the one who would come in the line of the high priest of Melchizedek. And so our author takes the audience back to this experience, and he's going to say, I want you to look at the past. Look at Melchizedek. There was a great high priest that superseded the Levitical priesthood that you guys are drifting back into. You're drifting back into legalism. You're drifting back into the law. Don't forget that there was a better priesthood out there that we were waiting for, that we were anticipating. And so he takes them back there and then he's going to move forward in verse four. He says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Again, our, the father of faith generously gave to Melchizedek. He says, those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises and blessed Abraham. Here's what our author just said. He said, man, Abraham had an encounter with this high priest and generously gave, freely gave, came under Melchizedek and honored him. 
But then when it comes to the Levitical priesthood, we need rules and regulations for how to give generously. There needs to be commandments for how to tithe, commandments for how to give and provide for this system. That when it comes to Melchizedek, it's free, it's generous, it's exciting, it's an honor, it's a joy. When it comes to the Levites, we need rules and regulations. And what he wants the audience to see is that the priesthood of Melchizedek is far superior than the Levitical one. He wants them to see that there is a drastic difference between these two systems and they're going back to the Levitical system. He's saying, don't do that. That Jesus, and you'll see there on your notes that the main idea this morning is that Jesus is the only one worthy of our worship and sufficient to save. Our author is building to the point where we see that Jesus is the great high priest and we should be anchored to him sufficiently because he is sufficient. Verse seven says that it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. If I can just pause for a moment. This verse, um, I know that this verse is talking about Melchizedek and that I love that he says it's beyond dispute. It's abundantly clear. It's, It's super simple to see that the inferior is blessed by the superior. One, I think this would have caused a little bit of like, whoa, like Abraham is inferior. Again, he's the father of faith. He, he's, he's, he's the one who holds the promises and you're saying he's inferior, but Melchizedek is greater. He says, it's, it, it's not up for debate that the inferior Abraham is blessed by the superior Melchizedek. I know that's what he's saying, but if I can just share how the Lord used this verse in my life this week, that verse seven to me, is such a beautiful picture and summary of our gospel that we are inferior and we are without dispute blessed by the superiority of Jesus. That our great high priest would come and lay his life down and be the sacrificial lamb in our place for our sin, that we are blessed by the superior Jesus. We are inferior. Jesus is superior and we are blessed by him. This is such a beautiful, in my mind, summary of what sets us apart from all other religions and faiths. All other religions and faiths say that we need to try harder. We need to work harder, that we're here to support and build up and better the gods and and help them or support them. And if we don't, then we are not blessed. But yet our The Bible and Christianity says, no, no, no. Like we're inferior, Jesus is superior and we're blessed by him. We're the only faith that is blessed by the superior. Every other religion teaches differently. Every other religion believes a lie and Christianity comes and says, no, no, no. God's gonna come and from the beginning, the plan was that he would mediate for you, that you couldn't do it and God was going to on your behalf. We are blessed by the superiority of Jesus, our great high priest. He continues on in verse eight. As again, we're looking at these past priests. He says, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Let's just pause here because again, I think what he's saying is that the, the, the Levitical system, you would see the priests come and get called and appointed and then they would die and then there'd be a new priest and then they would do, do their thing and then they would die and then there'd be this new priest. And so there's this constant succession of priesthood. But with Melchizedek, he shows 
up and then he disappears. And there's this promise in Psalm 110. And so there's this kind of mystery of what's going to come through the line of Melchizedek. We know there's a hope. We know there's a promise, but we don't know what's going on. And he's saying there's two drastically different priesthoods coming on here. Why would you go back to this one when there's a far better priesthood, a far better mediator? And then he goes, verse 9 and 10, a logical and truthfully kind of gross conclusion here that he draws. He says, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is just by virtue of genealogy, Levi is present when Abraham honors Melchizedek as a great high priest. He's there in the loins of Abraham. Yuck. But he's there. And so Levi himself is acknowledging Melchizedek is a better priest. He came before the Levitical priesthood. It is a different and better system, a better priesthood. And from Melchizedek will come a priest that will rule and reign and mediate forever. Our author wants the audience to look at these past priests and these past systems and see the severity of the differences. And that one is woefully insufficient. And that's where he goes as he starts to now point out, he wants them to learn from the problem with the priesthood. In verse 11, he says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? He's saying, if if Aaron's line, if the Levitical priesthood was sufficient, why is there this promise in Psalm 110? Why do we get the promise of a better priest who will rule and reign forever? If this did its job, why do we need this? That's the problem. That's the discrepancy that he's illustrating here. He's wanting to drive home with this audience. He says in verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Again, what he's doing is illustrating the differences that Jesus came from a tribe that wasn't the the tribe of Levi, that didn't have an association with this insufficient system. He came from another tribe and he's wanting them to see biblically that this was always God's plan. This is consistent with what God has been moving towards, what God has been planning, what God has been promising. He wants them to see clearly that Jesus comes in the line of, of Melchizedek, and that there is a problem, there is an insufficiency with the Levitical system. Verse 15, he continues to say, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
It says Jesus comes and he rules and he reigns, not because he won an election, not because he was born in the right family, not because he was of the right tribe, but because he rules and reigns. His life, his body is indestructible because he is God and he was always plan A. I love, as again, as I thought about the priesthood, the system, and what it was like to be a priest in this time, their job really was to destroy life. I would come in my sin needing forgiveness, needing someone to mediate, and I would come to the priest with my doves or with my ram or with my calf or with my bull or whatever I would have that would be necessary to atone for my sin problem, and it would be the priest's job to shed that animal's blood for the forgiveness of my sin. Their job was to destroy life. And when the priests would kill the animal, that animal was dead. It was done. It was over. But Jesus, our far better high priest, comes and he lays his life down. It's not taken from him. He lays his life down. And when the time is appropriate, three days later, he picks it back up, proving, displaying his sufficiency, that his life cannot be taken, that death cannot consume, that death does not win, that Jesus is victorious, that Jesus is sufficient, that he is the only one worthy of our worship, that he is the only one who can rightfully and sufficiently mediate our sin problem. It starts with Jesus. It's fulfilled in Jesus that he is the one with the indestructible life. It's not taken. He is the victor. You guys with me this morning or am I just preaching to myself? Like, are we, are we awake? Are we alive? There we go. Okay, thank you. Dr. Katie, the Bible lady, she's with me. Jesus is our great high priest. Why would we go back to the insufficiency of our old ways? This is the plea of our author. Jesus' life is indestructible. He is ruling and reigning. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He wants them to see what you're going back to is so foolish. And he puts this on full display in verse 18. He says, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside. And then I think would have been really hard, what would have been really hard for our uh, original audience to hear because of its weakness and uselessness. Like, I think that would have been hard for them to read. Like you just called the law weak and useless. You just called the priesthood weak and useless. Like that's them's fighting words. He says, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. If you highlight, if you underline, if you circle things, if you write in your Bible, like um, circle, highlight all of the above, the, that draw near. Like that's, that's, a, that's a pretty big concept in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 4, he encouraged us to with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Here he tells us that we have a better hope that allows us to draw near to God. And my prayer, church family, for us for 2021 is that we would be a people who draw near to God that the curtain, the veil has been torn and that we get to draw near to God. Why would we go back to trying to do it ourselves? Jesus has made a way that we can draw near. He wants them to see that Jesus is the only one worthy, the only one sufficient to save. He says, it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and again he restates Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. 
says, when it comes to the Levitical priesthood, there was no oath, there was no promise. God didn't double down on this system. He gave rules, he gave commandments, he gave instructions, and then they just continued in the line of succession. But when it came to this line of Melchizedek, this far better priesthood, he doubled down in Psalm 110 and said, I promise, I give an oath that there's going to be a better priest who's going to come and mediate your sin problem. It's not gonna come from you and your efforts. You've always been the problem. It's gonna come from outside. God makes an oath. He makes a promise. He makes a commitment that there is a better priest and his name is Jesus. He wants them to see the problem. And then once they've seen the problem, they can rightfully love the perfect high priest. In verse 22, he says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. I love, again, how in in Hebrews, our author kind of teases out ideas. He throws out little appetizers. We've been talking about Melchizedek for a couple of weeks and we knew this chapter was coming. So we're just like, we pushed that on down the road. Like we'll dig deep into Melchizedek in a couple of weeks and we're gonna dig deeper into covenant language and covenant. Uh, what, does it, what does it mean that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant? We'll dig into that next week and the next couple of weeks actually. But for now, what I want us to see a simple definition of a covenant is a sacred bond between two parties that Jesus comes and establishes, he secures, he guarantees a better and sacred relationship between two parties. He holds it firm. He holds it fast. It's in his hands. It's not us. It's Jesus. This will come to a surprise to absolutely nobody in this room, but I'm not a big like clubber. Like I don't go to clubs. Um, the, the laughter shows how true that is. Um, I don't even know where a club would be, but I've seen them in movies. Um, and you know, in movies, like there's the big guy with the clipboard and the ear thing. And, um, and then there's this line of people. This is how I've thought about Jesus as the guarantor this week. Like Jesus not only comes and he holds our spot in line, But when we get to the door, he gets us past that big security guard. He pays our cover charge and gets us in the club. He's responsible for all of it. The beginning, the middle, and the end. It's all Jesus establishing this sacred relationship. He secures our spot. He pays our debt. And he gets us in to right relationship with the Father. It's Jesus' work, not ours. He is the guarantee of a far better covenant. Why would we go back? Why would we, why would we abandon this for a far better priest? He is a far better priest. He continues on in verse 23. He says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. The problem with the Levitical priesthood was they kept dying They couldn't stay alive. There constantly had to be new ones that raised up, new ones that were called, new ones that were put into office. And so there's no long lasting reign or rule. There's always a new priest. There's always somebody new who's coming in. He's saying this isn't sufficient. There are many in number. They're prevented from from establishing any sort of consistency because they die. However, verse 24, he says, he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus' life was indestructible. Death couldn't hold him. The grave, the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. He rules and reigns as the great high priest forever. Permanently, 
There, it, Jesus is never up for re-election. That's never going to happen. He's going to rule and reign into eternity as the great high priest, as the mediator. He continues forever. And the result of that, verse 25, says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who, again, look at this, draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When he says that he can save those to the uttermost, that's completely and forever. That no one is too far from Jesus's grace. No matter what you've done, no matter what your past is, Jesus can save, Jesus will save, Jesus can completely save and wipe it out. He is the far better priest. He can save to the uttermost. And once he saves, you are saved completely and forever. And then I love, I wish I had more time to dig into the fact that he lives to make intercession, that he stands in the gap. And, and the way that I read that, he loves to stand and argue on your behalf, to plead with the father saying, no, 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 I've already taken care of that. They're ours, that's our family. I love them, I'm for them. That Jesus stands today and intercedes for you as the great high priest. It's something he lives for. Man, that should fuel our faith in Jesus as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who sufficiently saves us, who's worthy of worship. He says he's able to save those from the uttermost. And then in verse 26, he says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And then he's gonna give us five descriptions of Christ, this perfect high priest. He's holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, he's separated from sinners, and he's exalted above the heavens. Again, why would you go back to the insufficiency of the law? The insufficiency, the weak and useless system that said, just like our first parents believed, we can work our way to God. Why would you do that? You have a holy, innocent, unstained, different, completely exalted and separated from us. He's the far better high priest. Don't go back. Don't go back. He says he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Whew, 28 verses, that's a lot. You guys guys hung in there, you did good. Here's, so, here's the big idea. I I, I grew up, uh, before we moved here, I lived in Florida. And uh, my wife and I would joke all the time, when you live in Florida, you go to the beach. And there's, there's, there's the touristy beaches where everybody goes and they're not as nice. And there's all these like t-shirt shops and, and just a bunch of restaurants and it's crowded and you lose a kid and the sand's not as nice because it's highly trafficked and the waves are never as good, but it's where everybody goes. We call those the McDonald's beaches. And that's no offense to McDonald's. It's just McDonald's. Like they've got a dollar menu. It's not fancy. Um, And then if you traveled like 15 or 20 minutes further down the road, there were the 
non-touristy beaches. They were a little bit more secluded. They were nicer because they were less traveled. They weren't as crowded. They, they had better waves or better piers. And you didn't have to deal with t-shirt shops or vendors or street performers. We called those outback beaches because they were just nicer. They were better. And we would always, when we were going to the beach, we would laugh and mock all the people settling for McDonald's when, man, if you just went 15 more minutes, 10 more minutes, you could have outback beaches. You could press on and find a little bit nicer, a little bit better. That's what our author here is trying to drive home. You guys are settling for McDonald's, Jesus's outback. And if you don't like outback, pick a restaurant you like. Um, he says, Jesus is far better. Don't settle for less. Don't go back to this. You've got Jesus. The son who's going to rule and reign as the great high priest forever that had no need to sacrifice for his own sin. He is perfect. He is innocent. He is unstained. Why would you go back? Why would you drift? Why aren't you staying anchored to Jesus who is sufficient to save? So what does this mean for us? Like, I don't think any of us this morning are struggling with, man, I almost brought my goat this morning to sacrifice at the altar. I don't think any of us, I mean, if you were about to do that, thank you for not doing that, because um, that'd be weird. Because um, Jesus is sufficient. That's why we didn't come with doves and calves and goats and lambs this morning, because Jesus is sufficient. That's why this doesn't look like a bloodbath up here, because Jesus' blood paid for it once and for all. We don't have to do that anymore. But what about for us today? If, I can, if we can throw up this next slide, I've got a few thoughts that I want us to, to dwell on and contemplate this week. One, I want us to see that there is a purpose in looking to the past to better understand the promise and plans of God. I love that the author here, as he has consistently done through the book of Hebrews, he goes back and he looks at how God has acted in the past to help them better understand what God is doing in the present. His present plans, his promise that he goes back to bolster our faith in the present. So church family, I want us to sit and dwell and think on, man, God's past, what he has done in our past, what he has done in Christ, and that can help us, that can fuel our faith, that can help us stay anchored to Jesus today the great high priest, that we wouldn't sacrifice and go back to relying on ourselves, that we wouldn't go back to the sin of continuing to try to cover over our sin and our shame on our own, to tell God, we don't want your grace. We're going to do it on our own. The same lie, the same pattern that, that our first parents started, we can so easily continue in today. One of the ways that we can fight against that is to look back. That's, what, that's where our author starts. That's where I want to encourage us. Look back at what God has done in the past. Secondly, that we can see that there are problems that point to our need for better provision and protection. You have pain and brokenness in your story. You have rebellion. You, have, you are the problem. And when you begin to see, man, I have stuff in my life that separates me from God. I need outside help. I'm never gonna do it on my own. I need someone to come alongside and help me. That's Jesus, the great high priest, 
who can and will save sufficiently, the only one worthy of worship, the only one sufficient to save. And so sometimes I think it's so good for us to sit in the bad news, to understand our brokenness, to understand that we were dead. We were children of wrath. We were enemies of Christ. We needed, to be, we needed a way out. We needed better provision and protection because we were the problem. And then finally, I think that leads us to, there is a perfect and permanent priest who leads us in love. That the answer is not, we try harder and do better. The answer is Jesus is sufficient. As our great high priest who is holy, who is innocent, who is unstained, who is separated from us and exalted and far better than anything we could try and do on our own. We just need to draw near to Jesus. So church family, would we be a church that draws near, that says we only, all we have is Jesus. All we have is his sufficiency. We can't do it on our own. We just need Jesus.